Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get um, straight back to markets here. The volatility has been... Uh, uh, really, I don't want to say unprecedented, but it's been um, unique, certainly. And uh, it's come through commodity, from commodities, through rates, into stocks. And um, right now, we're going to uh, talk to somebody who has to put his money where his mouth is. Phil Palumbo is the CEO of Palumbo Wealth Management. Um, how do you deal with this kind of situation, Phil? How do your clients uh, deal with this kind of volatility? Well, first, I think you, know, you have to you have to put it on the table that we could bank on a recession at the end of 22, if not the beginning of 2023. The way I look at it is that the, it's a binary decision for the Fed. It's either he's going to let inflation run or he's going to have to step in and raise interest rates aggressively, and he doesn't want to do both, which tells me that it's going to be a hard landing versus a soft landing, which is going to create increased volatility and eventually put us into a recession. And so how do you invest around that, given that there are so many uncertainties. I mean, it feels like a 50 basis point hike next week has been all but ruled out. But where the Fed goes from there is still a question, like Matt was saying earlier. I think there's still six hikes or so priced into the next year. But again, seven, seven. So look at WIRP, W-I-R-P go on your Bloomberg terminal. I do. I spend a lot of time on that page just staring at the numbers, not quite sure what to make of it. But (laughs) each number represents a 25 basis basis hike, basis point hike. Okay. Right. Okay. So, point being there that you know there's still seven hikes priced in, uh, but you have started to see some chatter that those bets could be pared back. How do you position your portfolio around that? Yeah, those bets will will be pared back. The Fed's not going to be able to raise rates seven times. We'll be in a recession before that happens. So in the meantime, I've been very vocal about this. Even when I was on your show too, in 2021, valuations were aggressively high. Whether it's the high flying technology, the technology sector, or even just the S&P 500, so those were opportunities to reduce risk and rebalance portfolios. So if you're a fully invested investor and you've been over the past three plus years, you actually performed well prior to 2022. If you didn't take risk off the table, any type of big run-ups in the markets like we saw yesterday, which will happen during these situations, you should reduce risk from your portfolio. That's number one. Number two, you should be looking at hedged equity strategies within your equity portfolio to protect you on the downside. Three is you should have gold and you should have commodities, which have been always very vocal with that. Within a balanced portfolio, gold and commodities, when inflation accelerates, does really well. And history going back to 1968 proves that. And gold is a hedge against stocks going down. So if you're truly balanced properly, which most people are not, this is the things that you can be doing to help counterbalance risk when we do enter in a recession at some point at the end of 22 and the beginning of 23. So but you're saying we're now in an environment where you want to sell the rallies rather than buy the dip. Absolutely. You sell the rip and you don't buy the dip in this environment. However, the only thing I will say, though, is that for new money, which I have a lot of clients that sold businesses and have new capital, this is the best time to come into new money, right? Because you're getting the opportunity to be able to build out a portfolio when you got valuations that are declining here, right? So this is going to be a great opportunity to buy stocks of great businesses at a cheaper level. Uh, so for new money, it's excellent. You know, for fully invested investors, you know, you're going to be in for some pain. Again, hopefully you did some rebalancing in 2021 and you, and you have a properly balanced portfolio to help you muscle through this. Can we talk about the yield curve a little bit? Because I'm looking at uh, yes. the 2's 10 spread. 
it got below 20 basis points I, earlier this week. Uh, you know, a few banks, or at least one bank, has suggested it could invert in the next week or so. How much of a signal are you taking from that? Tremendous amount of signals. So Greenspan always said, "Tell me where the tenure is, and I'll tell you where the where the where the, uh, where the economy is going." I say, "Tell me where the yield curve is, I'll tell you where the economy is going." The yield curve is flat, continue, continues to flatten out around 23 basis points. The twos and tens, that is going to invert. And somebody on TV just the other day just said, well, if it inverts, this time it's different. We're not going to go with the recession. I think that's ridiculous. The track record's 100% accurate. Uh, not, and, and then if you take that and you put on top of that 40-year high inflation data, a Federal Reserve that's going to have to raise interest rates, we're coming off of extreme valuations at, before 2022. When you put it all together and connect the dots, I just don't see how, you know, we don't, like I keep on saying, you know, enter into recession. So the yield curve, to answer your question, is, is one of the most important aspects of, of, uh, of, the, of the data points in terms of where we're going with the economy. Just want to quickly um, get an example of a hedged equity strategy. Without getting too deep in the weeds, okay. uh, the options weeds, what, do you, mm-hmm. uh, what would you advise? So what we did as a firm is we spoke to this, uh, this, this company called uh, Little Harbor. They have an ETF called MSTB, Mary Sam Thomas Boy. Essentially what they do, they long the S&P 500, and they use options VIX through VIX futures to, to hedge out the equity side of it. So about 20% of our equity portfolio is in this particular exchange-traded fund. We did this transaction September, October of 2021, and we're still long it right now. So the thought is if we do hit a recession, we go into a bear market. We hope that they'll do what they're supposed to do, right? Um, that's number one. Typically, we, before that, we had SPY on that 20% of our clients' portfolios. So now we just move that to the MSTB to hedge out the, the S&P 500. So that's what we are using. We don't use any types of collars on our equity strategies, or mm. we don't buy puts. You know, so we don't do any of the individual options. We depend on other managers to do that for us. And just quickly, I mean, how has that strategy been playing out? If I look at the VIX right now, it's spent most of March above 30 but this particular strategy, if the S&P falls greater than 10 12%, then the, the VIX, the, the options or the, uh, the, the risk on the downside will, will actually kick in. So it's pretty much been following what the S&P, S&P 500 has been doing from peak to trough so far. So it really hasn't kicked in yet. It's only if you get a major waterfall decline where it really will click, will, uh, click in and, and protect the, that piece of the portfolio. All right, Phil, great to get some time with you. Um, Very interesting stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. Phil Palumbo there, who uh, runs his own fund, Palumbo Wealth Management, and um, used to be at UBS, spent years, a decade at UBS, and before that was at Morgan Stanley. So it's a guy who knows what he's talking about. Very interesting um, hedging strategy. Let's talk about cars. I'm ready. Really, we're going to talk about LIDAR. Angus Pakala joins us, co-founder and CEO of Ouster. And uh, if you didn't know, Ouster is one of the hottest LIDAR companies out there right now. Went public via SPAC in 2021. And Angus, it's great to have you on the program. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around sort of LIDAR versus Tesla. Test, because Tesla says they don't want to use LiDAR, but they have uh, had partnerships with LiDAR companies. Why, why is LiDAR important right now? Sure. And, and before I answer that, I just want to give a brief kind of perspective on Ouster and what we're doing in LiDAR that stands apart. And, and really, Ouster is a digital LiDAR company. 
building digital chips that transform a legacy analog technology into the digital future. And, uh, and on the performance and benefits and affordability of digital technology, we've diversified, diversified across markets. So what, what Tesla um, is lacking, and I think that what, what LiDAR brings to the table is an absolute trust in data quality um, that, that is not there with cameras. So what you see from Tesla is they've gotten in some hot water because occasionally, and it is occasionally, the cars get confused with camera technology um, because cameras because really cars are basically because Tesla um, has neural networks that try and decipher what they see in video, right? Like humans, but they're not as That's good. That's exactly at it. right. Yeah. yeah. So a camera needs a neural network in, in order to interpret its environment. Um, and that sometimes gets confused. And so it sometimes crashes. And that's really that's a really challenging um, situation to be in if you want to go to full autonomy where people aren't paying attention and they get to fall asleep in their cars. LiDAR, on the hand, other hand, directly measures the information that you care about with no additional post-processing, and it does it so reliably that LiDAR is already used in safety-critical uh, environments across the world, like industrial settings, um, and, and it's trusted to save people's lives day in and day out and has for about 30 years in the industrial setting. So LiDAR doesn't get confused, and you can truly trust the data with your life. And so Tesla aside, I mean, what does adoption of LiDAR look like? Yeah, and that's, that's really um, – so LiDAR is the third and kind of last critical sensing technology after cameras and radar sensors. And LiDAR, because you can trust your life on it, and because it's so effective at understanding the, the true and rich 3D environment around anything, any machine, whether it's rolling, flying, driving, or monitoring those moving objects, it's the perfect sensor for bringing our entire world into the autonomy age. And I think of it as it's like finally uh, realizing the future that the Jetsons, uh, the Jetsons TV show laid out. So flying cars, driving robots that deliver you packages, um, safer cross crosswalks with lower congestion at intersections, and yes, self-driving cars are all made possible because of LiDAR technology in combination with the autonomy technology stack that, that rides above it. And so it's a really fantastic, safer, cleaner, less congested, more efficient, um, higher quality of life future that we're building through a combination of LiDAR sensors and, um, and affordable autonomy technology. It does make sense. I mean, I from what you're saying, it makes sense to me to combine it with video and you don't need, I guess, radar um, and, and the neural network. But what Tesla says is that you have to pre-map the environment with a LiDAR and then create a high def map and then insert the lanes. And if you have to do that, it seems like a lot of computing power. Yeah, I think that's just kind of a, that, that's, that's a, the legacy way of thinking about it. But most companies using LiDAR today don't pre-map, and they do similar things. It's a similar software stack, an algorithmic stack to camera technology, but they don't have to rely as heavily on machine learning, um, which is great. Machine learning is great at distinguishing between a hot dog and your cat in an image 99.9% .9 of the time, but it's not great at uh, doing that 100% of the time. And in auto and in, you know, when, when human life is, is involved, you want to be able to do it 100% of the time. So LiDAR allows you to re remove some of the fancy machine learning, trust the data with your life, just kind of the raw data coming out of the sensor, but also apply 
some of the learnings that we've gotten from the, the camera world. So, you know, we don't have to pre-map anymore. That's not what companies are doing today. It is what companies thought about doing five years ago, but the industry has moved on from that. And I think Tesla was just kind of right in, in not pre-mapping. And so I solicited questions from our Bloomberg News print team about what to ask you. And Andrew Grant said that the most important question for LiDAR companies right now is whether ADS or AVs are the most important market. ADS, ADAS being advanced driver assistance systems, AVs being autonomous vehicles. Which of those markets do you see as more important for your company? Yeah, well, this is one of the places that Ouster stands apart. So we built this more affordable, more performant digital LiDAR technology, putting LiDAR onto literally one silicon chip. And that's allowed us to diversify across many different applications in automotive, industrial, smart infrastructure, and robotics. And so we actually aren't trying to bet on whether AVs or ADAS is the more important market because we're playing in both. Our products are literally good enough to play in both, just like digital cameras are able to play in the ADAS market and the AV market. Uh, digital cameras go on telephone poles, and they also go on the drones that are flying on Mars. Um, so digital technology is so flexible, you can address all these markets. And I actually am a big believer in both ADAS and AVs. Now, ADAS, I think, is the, the sure bet with huge volumes, and it's, it's more clear on how ADAS is moving from L2 plus hands-on driver-aware systems to L3 driver, you know, hands-free, eyes-free systems, and their LiDAR plays a huge part in allowing a, a person in a car to take notes on the way to work and be hands-free, eyes-free. Mm. Um, but LiDAR is also the critical sensing technology on autonomous vehicles, and in many cases, it's the only sensor um, on an autonomous vehicle. Um, and so that's going to happen, but I think it's a little less clear. But um, because AVs are such a high bar in terms of technology and reliability. Our, our veteran war reporter, Greg Jarrett, Angus, points out that LIDAR is extremely helpful in military applications. Do you, um, do you see a big market there as well? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, LIDAR can be incredibly useful in situations like convoying. You know, there's a huge amount. The, the, the number of support vehicles in the military is far greater than the number of active kind of uh, uh, fighting vehicles. And that's where most casualties happen in wars and the supply chain. Mm. And so there's immense opportunities to automate a supply chain. Um, these vehicles should be automated. It's fuel trucks. It's, it's food trucks. It's all kinds of supply vehicles that historically have been hit by their, their, their IEDs and things like that. Yeah. And you really would like those vehicles to just be autonomous. It's so fascinating. I wish we had more time, uh, Angus. Hopefully we can get you back. Thanks so much for joining us. Ang Angus Pakala there, the CEO of Ouster. Let's get over now to Dave Harden. He is the um, founder and president of Summit Global Investors. Dave, what do you take from the kind of volatility that we've seen, you know, wash through commodities because of this war um, into rates and, and kind of, you know, on this side of the Atlantic, it hasn't rocked the equity markets as much as it has on the other side, but we still were uh, you know, down 3% on Monday, up 3% yesterday. Now we're down again today. How do you deal with this? Well, uh, you know, this volatility has made everybody understand that risk is important, right? So people, people need to understand that risk management is essential to having better portfolios. And the better they understand what's in their portfolio, the better the portfolio performs, they hope. 
So having some exposure right now to commodities or we're overweight energy, I think those things are very prudent in the portfolio. And maybe some people might even say energy is the more defense. You heard the, you know, the expert come on and say, hey, I think it's going to be here and settle into this range. And there's a lot of truth to that. So it's really hard to go to somebody like Venezuela. It's really hard to go to somebody out there that you know, we haven't really been friends with, with Iran and switch hands from one dictator to another dictator. So from our standpoint, I think you have to have some commodity exposure, energy exposure in your portfolio. And our models from a quantitative perspective, from a risk perspective, all tell us and a fundamental outlook that having some of that exposure is important. But it's going to be volatile. So I think in a volatile market, you have to look for things that protect the down and still get some of the upside. You know, mathematically, people forget that if you only went down half of what the market went down every day, you would only need to go up 66% in the up market to outperform. So it's a lot better to try to protect in volatility than it is try to get that upside. You know, when the market's up two, I want to be up 2.2. That's a lot harder to do, and you get crushed on the down. So my advice in volatility is start to look at risk and start to manage risk. And you can find that in some defensives right now. You can find that in healthcare right now. So that's some of the things that we're doing for our clients. And Dave, we are six short days away from the Fed meeting. And the narrative for a few months now has been, you know, the Fed put is dead. You're not going to see the central bank come in and prop up asset prices. But, I mean, the S&P 500 flirting with uh, correction territory. At what point do you think that makes Fed policymakers blink? Well, um, they, they blinked when, we, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. Remember that Thursday they came out and there was so much Fed speak. They, they, they were almost scared, and I'm putting in my language here. I don't want to put words in their mouth. But they were almost scared to see a negative 3.5% down day. They had to come out and talk about that they might not raise interest rates as much and they might not do this. And we saw that swing, negative 3.5% to positive 3.5%. Why? Only because the Fed right? So we've already seen them blink. There's, they're absolutely worried about this market. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be. But the Fed making a mistake, a policy mistake has definitely increased because of what's going on in the world today. Their, their vision is not as clear. It's cloudy, if you will. Inflation, I mean, 7.9%. Really, what does it matter if it's 7.9 or 8 or 7? The point is 7% inflation. That's the point. So they are backed into a corner, um, and this creates a lot of problems, and it increases the larger downside risks. Again, another reason why for our clients as a whole, you need to look at managing risks. We, we do see the market is priced in uh, a, a lot of, of, of uh, hikes, and I guess we'll talk with you about that a little bit later, Dave. But great having you on the program. Dave Harden uh, talking to us about what we're seeing now. Now let's get over to Amos Shaw, the president of ALTR Created Diamonds. And, you know, we've seen such incredible swings in commodity prices Amish, I wonder if um, the diamond industry has been hit the same way as um, the moves we've seen in oil or in gold, etc. Even though, of course, the kind of diamonds that that you're creating are different than the kinds that are mined. So the overall diamond industry in the with the inflationary situation in the last six months has already seen almost like a twenty percent price increase. 
However, with the current situation of conflict, we're st- with Russia being almost 40% of the diamonds in circulation and about 28% of new production that comes in the system is everywhere from those areas. Um, this, there is no direct sanctions on diamonds. The sanctions are around the banks as well as the CEO. However, it's the consumer sentiment that's going to make the most difference. So with the consumers starting to talk about it, I think we're expecting a price surge in a tightening of supply. Wow. I mean, we all, I feel like it's been well broadcast how big of a supplier of, you know, energy, of natural gas Russia is. Haven't heard as much about diamonds. And it's interesting uh, that this is happening at the same time as, you know, we're heading into a so-called wedding boom. I don't know. If I look at my mailbox, I've gotten so many save the dates uh, for the coming year. How, how? Yeah, because they were put off for two years. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, the fact that you do have, you know, already you're seeing these price increases, given that demand obviously is growing as well. I mean, how how much higher do you think that prices could naturally go here? I think uh, the consumer sentiment could rise this anything between 10 to 20 percent. However, um, a geopolitically conscious consumer today is starting to look at the options because today they have a choice. They have a choice of created diamonds, lab-grown diamonds that are grown above the earth that are not grown in these conflict territories, cut and polished in other countries, and jewelry is made either in U.S. or in Asia. So they have a choice uh, with us going, you know, we're expecting 2.5 million millennials to get married this year, uh, to get engaged this year. So there is a choice. Um, the price is going to be subjected to how long this conflict lasts. Where, where are your? Where do you do all of your work? Where do you create um, your diamonds and cut and polish them? Is is Russia part of the supply chain? No, our growing is actually in India. Cutting and polishing is in India. The design of jewelry is done in the United States, and we finish jewelry between China and the United States. How much? How much of a competitor are you to, you know, uh, earth mined diamonds? I mean, when people are looking, um, do they get to see both choices? Is price um, roughly in line? Is is the quality indistinguishable? So, uh, a ultra created diamond is chemically, optically, and physically same as an earth mined diamond. The only difference it's grown above the earth. From a price value, being that we are not part of a monolith pricing strategy, it's demand and supply. So today, uh, it's almost a 50% better value. So you almost get a 50% larger diamond for the same price. And the best part is over 70% of consumers today that shop for engagement rings are aware of lab-grown diamonds. And so, I mean, I could definitely see how this would be a tailwind for lab-grown diamonds. But what about some of the diamond alternatives? Uh, I hope I say this word right. Mossinite? Uh, that's something you hear about more and more as sort of a substitute for diamonds. Cubic zirconia? Exactly. Yeah, can't even pretend <laughs> to pronounce that. But how, how do you see that competitive landscape unfolding? Actually, this is very good you brought it up. Because in 2018, um, the U.S. Uh, Federal Commission made sure that these can no longer be even identified to look like or marketed as diamond alternatives. Cubic zirconia and moissanite are actually found 
from chemicals. One is zirconium dioxide and another is another chemical that is given the form and a structure to look like a diamond. They're actually not diamonds. Only earth-mined diamonds and lab-grown diamonds and ultra-created diamonds are carbon. They are diamonds. It's interesting. I'm seeing such a broad price range. Um, when I look up, I uh, just Google Alter Created Diamonds and, and click on the shopping tab. Some of them are um, two grand, three grand for two carats. Some of them are 15 grand for two carats. So it depends on the quality. Just like earth mine diamonds, the difference of price is relative to the characteristics, the shape, the size, the color, and clarity. Mm. They are graded just like earth mine diamonds because they are both diamonds. And hence, the pricing is uh, to the four C's and ultimately the demand and supply for them. And one very important thing that has changed is uh, as technology evolves, the value has got better for the consumer and accessibility has gone easier. All right, Amish, thanks so much for joining us. Amish Shaw, they're president of Alter Created Diamonds. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.